Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 108. Our guest this month is Phaedra Michelle Scott. Phaedra is a dramaturg, producer, and playwright, and a writer, whose work reflects her passionate belief that art is activism. She's been part of the artistic departments of the Cleveland Playhouse, Huntington Theater Company, and Company One Theater. If you don't know, dramaturgy is one of my favorite roles in theater, and Phaedra is a regularly practicing dramaturg, so I figured we'd start with the most basic of questions. you describe dramaturgy? What is it to you? So dramaturgy, to me, is making sure that the playwright is telling the story that they want to tell. Um, I I work really primarily with new play development, and so about 95% of the writers I work with are still living. Um, And so that means that when they're in development, usually I meet with them about a year into their development, sometimes their very first week of development, um, and we go over like, okay, well, what is it? What is the central question of your story? Why do you want to tell this story, and what is the heartbeat of it? And I, I continue to ask those questions to make sure that they understand what the play is, but also that they can tell the story that they want to tell in the most effective way possible. Okay. Um, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a softball at you here, a really stupid question. Uh, don't you think they already know what story they want to tell? I wish. <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> then I would be out of, out of a job. Uh, but honestly, I think writer, writers are so creative and brilliant that um, so many times they realize that, especially like in the very first year of development that they're thinking of one play but it maybe turns into two plays or maybe it's not even a play uh and so a lot of it is being really flexible in terms of making sure they understand their own central story their own central question and like the own their own story that they're trying to tell okay uh can you give me a, a an example without having to name names uh of a situation where you've encountered a playwright who's come up with a brand new brilliant play and you begin working, and it turns into something they didn't expect. Uh, yeah. So there's one play that I worked on where at first it was told very linearly. Um, and the player was like, you know, this is not actually having the emotional impact that I want. I don't know if this is really the story that I need to tell right now. Uh, and then we just started playing around with moving some scenes around uh, and seeing what, what would happen if we found out information in a different order. And she realized that that was what the play was. Like the play was about flow of information, not necessarily like, okay, here's this like linear family drama and that's it. Uh, And so we ended up changing that probably like a day before the reading. And it was so beautiful and meaningful. um, And the play went on to live and have a brilliant life. So it's, it's little aha moments like that. Gotcha. How long is the process for something like that? So um, I've worked on plays for as long as three years. Um, I'm working on a musical right now where we are now entering in our second year of development and we have another one coming up. And so a lot of times I'm doing like the very long game. Um, so most of the work that I'm, I do now, I'm not going to see until probably 2021. Wow, that's a very yeah. long time to be working on a single piece. Yes. Yeah. Um, But like, you know, it always evolves and completely changes. And as a dramaturg, I find that 
what tends to happen is that you develop your own tribe of playwrights. So um, I have like my collection of about like a dozen playwrights that I consistently work with. And they're always in various stages of development. Some are about to go into production and that's great because then I can like sign on with them to do that production. And some are doing like these one and two week workshops. And so it's really just a balance of figuring out who needs what when and where their plays are in terms of their development. Gotcha. Um, I've, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of workshopping. Right. Uh, yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. right. So much so that I, I wrote a book on it. Um, but a one or two week session, which is honestly the longest I've been through. And I know from my own experience that I have made unbelievable changes on a play. I can't even begin to picture something taking a year. What's that like? Well, a lot of that is space for the playwright. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm the drum, I've been the dramaturg for the past three years at New Harmony Project, which is like a really process-based new play development workshop in New Harmony, Indiana. Um, and what I find there is that there's some plays that I, I work on there where we'll have those two weeks, we'll really dive deep into maybe just the world of the play. The playwright doesn't even work on text. Like they just do like some ideas and character sketches and maybe a timeline. And that'll be those two weeks. And then probably six months later, they'll get a workshop somewhere. And then, then they'll start putting like words to whatever research that they had done previously. Uh, and so I think some, some playwrights do take longer than others, but I've also worked with, um, you know, playwrights who will rewrite entire plays in one night um, and like usually, ah. they're, yeah, like that, I, I, I am always so impressed when that happens, but I also, as a dramaturg, I, I'm a very huge advocate of self-care. And so whenever that happens, I'm like, great. I am so happy that you did this. I will read this today, but we are not talking about your play today. We will talk about it like the next day. Cause, uh, you know, I think that initial feedback after a writer has had such like a high of like completely changing a play, right. um, it's, it's just not very conducive to getting feedback on it. No, you uh, need to think about things, as, especially as drastic as that. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I've had some playwrights who, like, will send me entire new drafts of plays, and, like, they know my 24-hour rule of, like, okay, I will read it, but, like, we're not talking about it at all. And then, like, the next day at, like, 3 o'clock, they'll be like, actually, I hated it. Don't ever read it. Please don't read it. Let's never talk about it again. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's just like, yep, I, I knew it. Like, it's it's totally, I mean, it's really fun having those situations and like reading these drafts where I'm like, what, what was happening? <laughs> um, and so I, I just, I love those moments completely. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I, it's, I love the process myself, but how do you deal with, with playwrights who go through a lengthy process um, and perhaps feel that, they're not succeeding at the process. I mean, because once you start changing things in an original text, you start to question how you put it in there in the first place, I guess. And, you know, working with a playwright who's pro who might be new to the project, to, to the process, or working with a playwright whose play, I don't know, is, is, is especially sensitive to them. How do you, how do you keep them positive? Or is it your yeah. job to keep them positive? So I, I think there's like a couple of different camps of dramaturgy um, in terms of like what is your role. Um, and I think for me, having that rapport with the playwright to be comfortable enough to be like, hey, let's just go out to dinner and not talk about theater. Or let me see where you are in your process. And kind of having those really candid um, 
emotionally open conversations because like by nature of writing a play, it's like so much like emotional, I guess like not, not strength. Um, just like it just takes a lot out of a playwright. And I, I definitely understand that. Um, and what I really do um, that I think has been helping a lot of the playwrights is that I, I take super detailed notes every single draft that I, that I read. Um, and sometimes I think playwrights need that initial, wait, what did I do the first draft? And so like these reminders of like, oh, this is where we were a year ago or like six months ago mm. and look at where we are now. And so having someone to keep those time markers for the playwright because uh, I, I also understand what it's like to have so many drafts, maybe even drafts that, you know, the player didn't even share with me, that sometimes things get so muddy that you kind of forget what the play was. Um, and that's why I also am a huge advocate of time that like, yes, work on your play for like the two weeks. But then I also think you should at least take two extra weeks off and like not even look at it. Um, and I think that emotional distance helps kind of figure out what the story is. Uh, but I'm also, I always say like, well, you know, if you don't look at a work, you put it in a drawer for a month and you think, well, the play is this and you go back and you find out the play isn't that, then that, that means, you know, you, you've made that journey of figuring out what the play really is supposed to be. Or like what you always thought the play was. Because I think no matter what, no matter what playwright um, is, no matter where they are in their process, they always go back to like the kernel that started them in the first place. But like sometimes you have to like go all the way around the block to get back home. Right, right. Yeah, no, I'm I'm well aware of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm completely in favor of the entire process. And I've discovered things from working with remarkable dramaturgs um i just worked actually a couple of weeks ago i had a play of mine produced and i was working with a dramaturg for probably about a month and he kept coming back with all these pointed questions about why was this said and do i need to say that and can we tighten this up and mm. all of all of his suggestions were on point they were so on point to the point where i started thinking i don't know how to write a play at all um, and this is probably my 10th play, but I knew the play was getting better. Um, that's an awful lot of hard work. Uh, how many plays do you work on at once? Um, you know, it, where I just was, I was working on about at the new harmony project. That was about eight plays. That Ouch. I was on. Yeah. Full that length? Was, <laughs> uh, most of them were, wow. but so I, it's it's such a it's such a balance, but like I'm very happy and lucky that I'm such like a voracious reader um, that I can pull the most random sources out of thin air of like some random like academic journal I read three years ago um, to help a playwright kind of be, get more information about where they are in the world of the play. Um, so that was that was probably the most extreme example of like how many plays I've worked on at the same time. I usually am working on at least two at the same time, I would say safely. Uh, mm. But then like it always rotates out. So it always evens out. And sometimes like there'll be like a couple weeks where I'm not working on anything, which is also very good. And then I'll get, I'll pick back up for like another workshop. Right. All right. Well, the work keeps coming. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm like incredibly thankful and grateful for. But right. um, I, I also think it's a testament to how a lot of regional theaters and also like 
uh, artistic companies find value in workshops. Uh, It's really incredible, actually, the more and more workshops that are being a lot more inclusive in terms of having just like a larger variety of people involved. Um, And like, I I mean that like in terms of um, parity, but also in terms of racial demographics and age demographics too, which I think people Mm. are now recognizing like, it's really essential that we have parents tell stories. Um, And like, also it's really essential that we have like uh, people over 60 telling stories that like the the theater world is not just people like, you know, 35 telling these living room dramas, uh, that it's so much more than that. Well, I mean, there's a, there are myriad voices out there, thousands upon thousands of voices from every demographic you could possibly imagine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that places are, um, I, I read for like a ton of companies. Like I read, I, I don't even know how many at this point I read for. Um, and seeing how year after year their standards change has been really like kind of eye-opening and heartwarming to know that theater is evolving to actively include more voices. Uh, I think for a very long time, we were stuck in that whole, oh, well, we have the language, but we're not do like, we don't really have to do any work for it. But um, I, I also think part of that has to do with accountability. Um, and a lot of people holding theaters accountable for having like an all white cis season, even though they mm-hmm. talk about inclusion and parody and things like that. Um, and so that's also been like a huge mission personally of mine is to figure out what is the who who watches these theater companies, who holds them accountable. Um, that's why I'm like, like I love the Kilroys because yes. they just publish that list. They're mm-hmm. just like, here are the theaters that did parody. And like, it's abysmal that there's like always like maybe 10. And when you think about all the theaters in the country, and it's like you're telling me that in a world where half the population's women, you can't find any w- women playwrights. Uh, so if, like, I, I really, I know they're out there somewhere. No, ex- right. It's like, what? <laughs> it, I really appreciate things like that. And I, I do think that there needs to be like something that I'm personally working on is trying to develop a system where people, theater companies in particular, or organizations are held accountable for not upholding their mission statement. If their mission statement has anything to do with diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion. Well, words are easy to throw out there. They're not so easy to back up. Exactly. And like when it's been proven like year after year, it's like then, you know, places Mm -hmm. should not be getting grant money for those initiatives if all they're doing is putting, you know, those marginalized people in their education programs. Hey, kids, if you're just joining us, this is On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. Our guest this month is Phaedra Michelle Scott. Phaedra is a dramaturg, playwright, director. She's drawn to work that features queerness, women, people of color, all by storytellers who for centuries have been told that their stories did not matter. Right now we're on that very subject and we're talking about how to get work by underrepresented people into traditionally dominated white theaters. I agree. I mean, but traditionally, well, historically, or there's a word that's going to make this sound like an intelligent question. Theaters have been run by a lot of white men and or white folks anyway. So when it comes to diversity, I'm wondering if they're kind of stepping out way out of their comfort zone in trying to attract persons of color or uh, persons of varying gender to produce their work. How will they know where to go to find this stuff and you know, how good it's going to be. I mean, it's, it's, that is pretty much of a rhetorical question, but 
you know, you say diversity in, uh, in, in the mission statement, and it looks great in the brochure, but do they actually have the tools to go out there and make it happen? I honestly think most places do not. Um, and recently, where I have been positioned in my career, I've been really holding those people accountable. Uh, and I think it does make a lot of theater artists, especially white theater artists, in positions of power feel uncomfortable uh, to know that they're being watched and that like, they know that if you know, something doesn't change, then th- there ha- I mean, there has to be something that, ch- that makes these people change. Um, and, and so I, I, think, I think what the issue is is that people are just, they think that the solution's a lot harder than it is. The solution is just hiring people of color, hiring queer people, giving them uh, like actual resources to do the work that they need to do. Cause I, I think there's this like really horrific assumption that like, Oh, well, if this playwright, you know, doesn't have any formal training, then they're not worth the time. And, you know, it's like last I checked, August Wilson was washing dishes when he got, you know, the call from the O'Neill. Right. Um, and, and so it's by saying that like, Oh, those people don't exist is I think, you know, an incredibly elitist way of, of keeping people of color and queer people just, you know, in the fringe scene. Cause it's, it's saying like, well, you don't have the training, but, and like, it's such, I feel like the goalposts keep changing. So it's like, they don't have the training. So then they try to like get higher education or get that MFA. And then they're told they don't have the real life experience to do it. And it's just like, well, what are these people supposed to do? Um, and, and I think it's just been so many, so many excuses by people who are really afraid of, you know, America changing demographically of everything that's happening with the current administration. Um, And, you know, it's always been, I think the default has always been white. Um, And I think for a lot of the people who are in those positions of power, the default feels safe. Uh, Because, you know, I think people are always afraid, like, oh, well, we won't sell tickets anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they're like, well, how do we get people of color into our communities? Uh, and like the answer is just so simple. It's like, just don't engage with them one time a year in like, you know, February or May or April or whatever designated month they have. Um, uh, but like, and do, do more meaningful things other than like cast that random black person as a maid role, uh, in like, you know, doll's house or whatever. Uh, cause like, I mean, it's just, it's really impressive to me to see how, how I think, you know, administrators make the problem seem difficult when it's not. I think fear plays a large part of it. Fear of either approaching something they're not familiar with, losing their status and the status quo, or uh, just being completely ignorant about the subject that they're trying to approach. I mean, that's that's enough to hold people back. Um, here in Ithaca, we have the Kitchen Theater, which is has been encouraging diversity for many years. We've got a brand new artistic director. I think she's a friend of yours, actually. Yes, and she Bevan is. Ogar, yes. Yes. Um, we love Bevan in this town. Yeah, I love her. I can't wait. I'm moving to New York, actually. So uh, I can't wait to hang out in Ithaca with her. Cool. That'd be fun. Um, Yeah, so she's... uh, The work that the kitchen does is is really wonderful. It comes from a a spectrum of, of voices. And it's so wonderful to see that rather than to see, you know, another production of glass menagerie um or you know long day's journey into night or or some you know chestnut like that that really needs to take a rest um Mm. plus we're getting new voices which is exactly what the theater needs 
I, yes, I completely agree. Um, I, I want to go back to your point about fear, um, mm. ma- mainly because it, it connects to a lot of the work that I end up doing. Um, a lot of times I'm working in predominantly white institutions and a lot of times I am working with the like literary directors or like the people who are in charge of their reading committee, um, and helping them develop better reading submission practices. Uh, it's kind of like been like the niche that I found only cause I, I do understand that fear of being like, Oh, well, what if we have a quota of like how many people of color we have? Does that make us like racist or does that make us like, you know, like wanting to do things right, but not knowing how to do it. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of what I do is really assuring people that this is kind of what we have to do and that it might be scary and it might be uncomfortable, but kind of setting these standards so that way more people can be at the table. Um, when I work with writers, I tend to work with, I think about a couple years ago, a lot of my work ended up being with a lot of white writers who wrote people of color, black people specifically. Mm. Um, And what ended up being was that I kind of started doing like cultural consulting slash like civic dramaturgy. I'm of the mind that um, anyone is able to write any character in any story. However, it needs to come from a genuine place of understanding and and it can't be anything that like exoticizes those people Or is like, oh, great, I want a production. So now here I'm just going to put in my random token person of color Mm -hmm. and some theater company is going to pick it up because that ultimately is what happens. And like there's such a responsibility for white writers because they get produced that they do need to do their work and they do need to do a lot better in terms of making people that are more than just stereotypes. Um, And so a lot of times I challenge a lot of writers and I think I make them uncomfortable, but also make them feel thankful that I'm there just to be like, Hey, why, why is this person a person of color? This is not a, this is like literally a white character that you're putting like, you know, some tan on. Mm. Uh, and, And I think talking about things in just that frank way is what we really need to do um, as as theater art artists and as advocates because uh, I I honestly am tired of not seeing enough plays that deal with intersectionality because um, it's like I don't just talk to black people um, and so I I just find it amazing that like you know a lot of the plays that I I encounter it's like that's the scope. Um, Likewise, like, so my fiance is a white man um, and, you know, all we see so many plays together and so many times it's like the point of conflict with like any play that deals with an interracial couple is that like, you know, the black woman finds out like her white husband is racist or like something like that. Like, and I think about that in terms of disgraced and I'm just like, what? Like, you're telling me that like week one, they didn't have this conversation or why is that like such, why is that what we think of when we see like you know, a, a, a black person and a white person in a room that they're just going to talk about that. And it's like, yes, in a lot of ways, the subtext is a lot about race. But however, it's like there's also like a, a whole other gambit of how we can talk about people. Right. Uh, when we talk about, you know, America becoming more and more or like becoming less and less white, it's like, well, a lot of white people are starting like interracial marriage is, is becoming even more and more common. Like where I am right now in Boston, it's like literally everyone is in an interracial relationship. Um, and so all the theater people I know, uh, it was kind of actually amazing. We realized we all were dating white people. 
and, and so I, I do think that America is changing and that means our conversations have to change, but it also means inviting a lot of people in so that way we can all feel okay talking about how messy it is and how we haven't really talked about, he, like healed any wounds about um, race in America and how, you know, it is still very a racist country. However, uh, there are a lot more facets to that. And that really includes intersectionality and different races just speaking together. Yes, I agree. A hundred percent. Um, let's switch over a little bit. Uh, well, actually, no, let, let, let me go back to this. Cause I mean, as a white playwright, I would be able to feel very uncomfortable trying to write an African-American character. I have no experience with that. And I don't know how to do justice to a character like that. So, yes, I would be somebody desperately reaching out for help if I needed, you know, if I needed that to happen in one of my plays. It's 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 a mm -hmm. it's, it's a daunting um daunting thing, especially nowadays because you don't want to be discriminatory, you don't want to be unfair, and you don't want to be that white person who thinks they know everything. Exactly. And I like, you know, to not be that is asking for help and is asking for resources. And I think it's just so, it's so, it's scary. I, I, I totally get that. And a lot of times when I'm working with people, you know, I, I try really hard to lead with kindness and like really come from a place of love. Cause obviously as a dramaturg, what I want is for the play to be as best that it can. Right. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of times that is, is like, is just being frank with like, you do not have this experience. So you need to listen to me and believe me when I tell you these things. Uh, and, you know, I think sometimes I've actually, I actually got a job that way. Um, <laughs> like at a, at a pretty region, a pretty big regional theater where I was on the phone with the playwright and, you know, he was a white playwright writing a play that was about black women. And I was like, I really, really challenged him. It wasn't just black women. There's other people. I really challenged him and, you know, he didn't say anything. Uh, after I kind of like went in on him about the representation and like what, like kind of really asking him, why does he feel the need to tell this story? And I was convinced I was not going to get this job, but I was like, well, at least he learned something. Right. And then like, I get a call a week later saying like, okay, I really need you to be on this project. And I think part of it is just letting that happen of being that being uncomfortable of like kind of hearing all of that and then understanding like, okay, this is actually what I need. Uh, and when those moments happen, it's like, great. We're like one step closer to being more inclusive as a field. Yes. It's hard steps, but they def uh, definitely need to be taken. Mm -hmm. um, okay. You mentioned something earlier when we were talking before the interview that I really want to go to because you said something in the interview about some folks, quote, not being able to find plays by, I don't know, uh, persons of color, women, uh, LGBT. Um, but you did mention the Black Theater Commons, which seems to be a, um, oh, I don't know, a, a, a library of uh, works by African-American writers. Yeah. So that's actually an initiative that I started about like, it was like two or three years ago. Um, I got a grant by the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas for $10,000 to start this initiative. Uh, it's a like a threefold process. Like the first one was to monetize dramaturgy in a way that has not been done before. Um, by that, I mean making 
like the actor packets that we develop that live through that one production and just like never see the light of day again, accessible to people that they can like pay for on like a subscription basis. Uh, and, but to have like this kind of trove of information specifically uh, of plays by black playwrights. So that way, you know, students uh, can look at these resources and be like, oh, this is a dramaturg in the field and this is how they're talking about this play. Or theater companies who don't necessarily know if they want to get this play, they can like read these sources and be like, oh, wait, actually, this is like really relevant to where we are location wise. Um, But also for a lot of struggling black theater companies, I I I hate the word struggling, but like, to be perfectly honest, funding for black theater companies is horrific. And a lot of that gets funneled into larger institutions who have the word diversity in their mission statement and don't Mm -hmm. do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of that is to give them to bump up their own resources. So that way they can give their, their audiences like a richer background about the plays that they're doing and to be a lot like a bit more informed about their programming choices, but back that backing that up with like really rich information. Um, and so that's, that's one part of it. Uh, and the second part is, is making this list serve basically of every single black theater artist that, that that's the ambition of every single black theater artist in the Americas um, and sorting them by what they do, whether that's dramaturgy, lighting, any kind of design position or administration position. So that way anybody can just look at this list and see an entire trove of people who are working or who are freelance. So that way there's, it eliminates that barrier of, well, we don't even know where to look, uh, which has always been the, that's, that's always been the excuse for so many years. Yeah, it's and an easy it, excuse. It's it's very easy. And it's like they just don't want to look more than like a couple emails. Um, and it's really kind of gross how that happens. And so th- part of that initiative is also to eliminate that. So really it, it'll be more about like the onus on that theater company or like the, those people that are putting on that play of not doing their part of just hiring these people if that's what they want to do, if that's what they claim that their theater company is trying to do. Um, and then the last part about that is a, we actually just got like a huge grant from the Mellon Foundation where we are engaging with a uh, historian at the African American History Museum in Washington, D.C. to make an archive of every single black theater past and present. Uh, so it can be kind of like just a digital time capsule of of black art, uh, something that hasn't really been documented before. Uh, we have like some time stamps and some time markers, but frankly, like when you look at all the books, uh, there's maybe like one play that's, or like one theater company that's mentioned that is like a black focused theater company in like, you know, all of those drama books that you read in undergrad or grad school. Um, and so this is really to elevate all those voices of the people before us today as black people today uh and to prove like hey we've been around just as long as you know institutionalized american theater has wow that is a monstrously sized project uh, yes <laughs> yeah yeah i actually i just had a meeting with about that this morning um but we are rolling out actually really soon knock on wood july uh, but we've been developing this website for the past year, so there's been a lot that's been going into it, a lot of information that's been collected. Wow. Wow. Well, okay, so we're going to have to find out where we can go to actually access this uh, project, and it's tons of knowledge <laughs> and references. Yeah. Um, 
That's that's amazing. So here's the next dumb question. I mean, between dramaturging all these plays or dramaturging, however you want to pronounce it, um, and doing the you know the, the black theater commons and everything else, do you have a day job or something? I mean, is there is there a non theatrical part of you? Yeah, actually, my day job is at the local NPR station in Boston. <laughs> Uh, I am a part-time reporter with their arts and culture section, the artery. Uh, so it's 90.9 WBUR. Um, and the best part about that is how flexible they are with my schedule. Uh, so I, I do a few radio features, um, and like a few digital posts, but I found that they really enjoy my perspective because I'm so entrenched into like the national theater community, as well as the Boston theater community that I oftentimes like give them stories that they would have never thought of. Um, and so that's been my, my part-time day job. Um, but I also, uh, worked at a few museums, uh, doing archival stuff. Like I, I'm a huge, you know, before I did dramaturgy, I was doing, um, exhibit research and exhibit design. Um, and so I do that like on a part-time basis whenever museums need someone to help them with a new exhibit or, uh, they need just someone to write some copy for whatever artifact is there. Uh, and, or just like to go in and archive stuff whenever they get like new acquisitions and things like that. Uh, it kind of goes hand in hand with like my love of reading and dramaturgy and history in general. Uh, so they're really like, so it all the same, like in the same umbrella. Hey kids, if you're just tuning in, this is On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guest this month is Phaedra Michelle Scott. Phaedra is a dramaturg, playwright, writer, director, and all-around activist for underrepresented voices in theater. That's great. I feel like if we were sitting down to dinner, you and I would be like the two people talking back and forth, and everybody else would be going, what? (laughs) I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to touch on something else, which I was when I was doing my research on you. Um, I came across this, and it's kind of mind staggering just in the amount of information that's going to be passed forward in one show. And I'm talking about the every 28 hours plays. All right, 85 one minute pieces from writers across the country that grapple with police brutality against African-Americans, racial profiling, um, takes its name from the, the statistic that every 28 hours in the United States, a black person is killed at the hands of a vigilante, security guard, and police officer. And I'm, I sat there, and I'm trying to take this, this paragraph in, and it just kept hitting me. 85 one-minute pieces in a roughly 90-minute show. That's an onslaught. Yes. Uh, that was, uh, I've never been more tired in my life. Um, afterwards, I, I think it was a lot of like the emotional, the, the emotional struggle of doing these plays, but also like the logistical things of getting the theater companies involved. Um, so every 28 hours was originally commissioned by Oregon Shakespeare festival. Um, and their goal, this was about two years ago. Uh, and Claudia Alec had this, this vision of in October of like, I think 2018 or 27, I don't even remember, <laughs> um, that every, that every, like 
chapter regional chapters all over the country would perform this play. It would be performed for free. Um, and the idea would be to start a conversation among people in that community. Um, so when in Boston, I, I learned about this idea at a TCG conference. And at the time I was working with company one and uh, they had signed on to be the, I, I guess like the, 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 the lead point of contact for Boston. And so what we did, uh, the project was so flexible that they really wanted us to do whatever we wanted. And from what I know is like the, uh, I was the producer of this event, um, is that we got together a lot of the smaller theater companies or like mid-sized theater companies in Boston. And we split up the 85 uh, one minute plays among all of those groups. So uh, including Company One, we had uh, Central Square Theater, the Theater Offensive, which is like a really amazing uh, theater organization devoted to serving queer youth in Boston, but also nationally. Uh, we also got Boston Arts Academy, which is like a local high school. Uh, and we got um, Harvard's Black Student Theater Group. Uh, we really wanted to have like intergenerational people represented. Uh, I think what was really amazing about this was that for the first time, we also involved um, deaf actors, which was something that we weren't expecting. And uh, the luckily, I had some connections with like some translators in the community, and they were just so on board with doing the story uh, and being our translators while we were in rehearsal and being there for our tech and also doing this all for the performance for free. Um, and we also partnered with the Museum of Fine Arts, which is like, you know, huge multi-million dollar institution. They gave us the space and resources to do this event and engage with the community for free. Um, it was all really incredible to see the, the amount of support for this project and how essential it was to tell this story. Um, we ended up, oh yeah, so we ended up doing it the day before two days before the election in 2016. So it was 2016. Um, and like just earlier that week, the Massachusetts Supreme Court had said that it was completely justified for a black person to run away from police to, uh, because they were fearing for their lives. Uh, and it, it kind of came to head at like such a powerful moment because, you know, kind of like the eve before the eve of the election and tensions, you know, were high and they continue to be high. This was like around the time where a lot of reporting was done on, on men and women and children being shot and killed by police. Uh, and this, the story was also really important to me because, um, when I was living in Cleveland, uh, Tamir Rice was shot and killed by police on the street that I lived on. Uh, and I just kind of was never the same after that. When I, at the theater company I was working for, the fact that there was zero acknowledgement or response to that um, kind of broke my heart. Cause you know, when you think about theater, you're like, oh wow, everyone's inclusive and everyone like, you know, feels for social issues in the world. But then to like feel nothing or like to go into work and like not even be able to focus on like reading a play about like, I don't know, like a bunch of like old people sitting in a room together. Uh, like I, I was just, I was so disenchanted and disillusioned that I was like, I have to do more with my art and like, I have to do something more socially focused. So I moved to Boston and that was kind of the, one of the very first things I did. Wow. I'm just, I'm just thinking of the, of the amount of work that went into this and the stories that must have come out of this. Do you remember any of the plays that, I mean, were there any of these one minute pieces that left a mark? I mean, a serious mark on you? 
Yeah, actually, there's this one. It, it was so simple. There was probably like three lines of dialogue in the whole thing. Um, but it was this black boy and like this white guy who's a police officer or like some sort of authority figure. Um, and he has this light, uh, like he's just holding a flashlight. And the police officer keeps telling him to turn it off. And he keeps saying no. And, and like, that just like, like, you know, I, I still think about that all the time. Um, like I have, I have three nephews, uh, and they're all like under 12. And I, I think about them all the time and like the world that they're growing up in and like how I'm suddenly like afraid, like if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and, they, yeah. and like they're not doing anything. Um, and like, you know, it makes me like think about the, the children that I will have that will look black, um, that will be black. And, you know, I, I just that that one one minute play, really, I wish I remembered who the playwright was, but there was like 85 playwrights. So mm, I just. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. That's crazy. That's that's I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to to be black in America. The, the whole thing really felt like going to church because um, even after the play was done at the MFA, people just sat together uh, and we, we had this moderated discussion by, um, the, this local Boston company that does a lot of social work in a lot of academic institutions, uh, like social justice minded work and like equity work in academic institutions, in like corporate institutions, uh, nonprofits as well. Um, and Mana Fakor was the speaker. Um, and it, it was really, it was kind of, it was so beautiful just seeing people like cry together uh like every like almost everybody was like crying by the end um and just to sit in silence with people and then maybe talk it, it was something that i hadn't experienced before in a theater sounds like a religious epiphany which is probably what it was close to yeah it, it yeah. truly was and like also i think seeing high school kids perform these plays in addition to seeing like equity actors perform these plays was like just like the scope of how powerful these stories were with all of these different ages was really quite incredible. Yeah. I'm so very, very sorry. I missed it. Uh, okay. Um, in addition to your dramaturgy and all the other 900 things you seem to be doing every other day, um, you're a writer, you're a playwright as well. Um, and one of my questions is going to be who's your dramaturg, but, I want to talk about your work first. Um, the 2018 Boston Project, you're working on a piece called Diaspora? Yes. Uh, so I had the reading about two weeks ago. And right now I'm in the 30-day uh, period where I rewrite it and then speak to the artistic director and see what happens <laughs> after that. Um, but so I became a Boston Project playwright. Uh, my, my, I, I would say like it's, it's my first really full-length play that I've ever written. I, I wrote before when I was an undergrad. Um, but I honestly, uh, so my, my sister died the day that Trump was inaugurated. So January 20th, 2017. Uh, and that really, I don't know, like unlocked something inside of me. That, um, cause I've, I've always saw myself as the person who was like, I, I think one of my biggest strengths is really helping other people succeed and other people have their voices mm-hmm. heard. Um, and so you know, the day that she died, I, like, it was just so like surreal that I ended up just like writing. Um, because I always tell my writers, I'm like, if you're having a bad day or like if something is happening, I was like, why don't you just write it out? Cause like, clearly there's something. Uh, and so like, I followed my own advice. Uh, next thing I knew I had like this play and, um, 
I, I didn't tell anybody I was applying. Like I, I told no, I didn't even tell my fiance. I told no one. Uh, so I applied for this thing. I only applied for one thing. I was just like, whatever. I was like, nothing's probably going to happen, but it's fine. And then I get this phone call saying that I was selected as one of the pyrites. And I just like, I mean, it's, it's been like a total life changer really. Um, and I've been able to, I think, find my voice in a, in a way that was different from before. But now I also um, can take my own advice better, I think. Because when I think about, I never knew how lonely writing was until I did it myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I'm always like, oh, what? Playwrights have such a fun job. And then like, you know, sitting in my room being like, oh, my God, this sucks. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, like I, that's what I learned. And I was like, all right. So now I, I feel like I can better help playwrights because I'm like, yeah, this is really tough. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love playwriting. Aside from directing, it is the one thing I wish I could, I will be doing for the rest of my life. There's no way you can stop me from doing it no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love the act. I love, the, I love the moments of epiphanies. I love sitting and staring at the page when nothing is coming. But even, you know, to me, that's writing. Right. And yeah. yeah, you know, it's just, I mean, having all these concepts just come out of you and spill out onto this page to be worked on later and to be refined and changed and thrown out and, you know, added to. And to me, it's to me, the process is wonderful. But yes, it is lonely because nobody can do it but you. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you're sitting with those characters and you're like, oh, that was great. Wasn't that great? And you're like by yourself. <laughs> and like you, you're like okay. It was just me that was talking to these people in my head. <laughs> was it really great, or did I yeah. the only <laughs> one who thinks so? Yeah, uh-huh. yes. It's it's when after you you know somebody's read your 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 script and you're sitting around the table and you're you're sitting there thinking that was I put so much into this scene, and you can see people around the table are kind of thinking, all right, how do I phrase this question? Because they know it's going to challenge you. And you're like, I still need to work on it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, Phaedra Michelle Scott, this has been an absolute joy to talk to you today. Uh, Thank you so very much for being here. Um, Before we part, please tell our audience where they can find out more about you. Yeah, so uh, I have a website. It's uh, www.phaedrascott.com. But I also check out blacktheatercommons.com as well. Uh, The site has like a very beta mode up right now, but the launch will be sometime in July or this summer. (laughs) Way cool. We will do so. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at On Off Stage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage, offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. 
I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>